I was on 100 grand when I came to Sydney and you don't live real well in Sydney on 100 grand, albeit, you know, 20 years ago. So you sort of had to um, eat what you kill. Yeah. So in essence, how did we scale it? We basically bought 10 centres a year. We'd buy 10 good centres and we turned them into 10 great centres. So we're very focused on organic growth. Buying something and making it better is an easier route than starting something from scratch. You're on this earth for a short time and mm. you know you sort of make the most of your life. What legacy living and um, leaving? When I'm not here, I think... Private markets investments are investors can find some real value. I find the best way to learn is learn from someone who's done it before and given it a go. Hi, I'm Travis Miller, host of Grow Your Wealth podcast. Thanks for joining me here today. On these podcast sessions, we're going to talk through how uh, certain investors have navigated the bumpy road of investing, whether it be through business or investments in general. Thanks for listening today. Hi, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Grey Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Miller, and today we have the privilege of hosting Tom Hardwick. Tom's personal and professional journey is nothing short of inspiring. He began his career in the legal field before venturing into the fast-paced world of investment banking, where he sharpened his financial acumen at Burdett, Buckridge, Young, and Patterson Ordmanette. Tom comes from an entrepreneurial family, which showed through when he started Guardian Early Learning Group as a side hustle in 2004. Under Tom's leadership, Guardian blossomed into a powerhouse value of over $500 million. Currently, Tom is channeling his vast experience and expertise as a partner at Kuji Capital. Today, we're set to dive deep into Tom's journey, extracting valuable lessons and insights. So sit back, tune in, and let's learn how to grow your wealth with Tom Hardwick. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming along. So I think the best way to start is, is just go a little bit back in time and just a bit of a background on yourself, who you yeah. are. Sure. We can kick into things from there. All right. Well, I uh, grew up in Melbourne, as we were just talking about, and um, uh, the oldest child of four kids and, uh, um, you know, played footy, played tennis, went to school and had pretty comfortable life down there. You know, my mum was a school teacher who gave up a job to, to be a mum for the kids and, you know, make sure you had a hot breakfast and <laughs> afternoon tea when you got home from school and all that fun stuff. My old man was a um, suburban accountant, so, you know, they kind of battled away to put us through school. And um, uh, and so that was, um, you know, I had a pleasant, comfortable upbringing. And then, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get to Melbourne Uni. So um, that was, uh, you know, a great experience. Um, did law commerce and sort of was never sure. I was sort of more on the business side than the law side. And, but... You know, I did enjoy, I sort of hated law the first two or three years and then I started to figure it out and enjoy it a bit more. And then, um, you know, I did internships at accounting firms and so I decided to go down the path of law and, um, uh, and work at one of the big firms and, you know, it was really the start of a pretty interesting career. So you at St. Bernard's, you went to school? Yeah, yeah, the Christian good, Brothers. Good, good uh, footy school, Yeah, good it? footy school played, down there. Played AFL? Yeah, I, I played AFL for a while and then... I was quite good at tennis. So I played tennis and not AFL. And then in year 12, I decided I was going to play footy again. And, uh, the first game I broke my collarbone no. <laughs> and so never played AFL again after that. <laughs> End of the career. Yeah, indeed. Um, yes. You mentioned Melbourne uni. 
Yep. And we're obviously probably the best uni in Australia. Yeah. Um, so you want to just take us through your early career from, you know, law to investment banking, funds management, before yeah. you started Guardian. Yeah. Um, we'll give us a bit of insight on that. Yeah, okay. A lot of the, um, lot of the listeners like to hear about the, the backstory before the real story. Yeah, okay. Um, I suppose that while I was at school, you know, my, my family were in the meat business in Victoria and while we lived in the city, you know, my grandfather was a wholesale butcher with his brothers and on the other side of the family, my mother's father started Tobin Brothers Funeral Directors, um, which was quite a sort of iconic funeral sure, business yeah. in um, pretty conservative kind of business. But, um, uh, and the other side were these sort of butchers and entrepreneurs. So there was quite a, um, entrepreneurial, um, spirit running through the family. And so I used to love, um, you know, going up and working in the meatworks and going, hang out the farms and, um, and then that sort of helped me, you know, earn some money, pocket money. And then when I was at uni, we did a couple of trips overseas. So, you know, I was working five, six different jobs and, you know, delivering pizzas and all mm -hmm. sorts of stupid things. But, you know, it's part of what you do when you're a yep. student just to make a buck. Um, so I think that ethos of, um, hard work and, you know, you, you get what you, you earn what you work for sort of was instilled early. Um, and then, uh, I eventually ended up at cause, you know, quite fortuitously, like I still wonder how I was good enough to kind of get yeah. a job. Cause this was after the, the crash of, you know, the late eighties when the world was you know, a bit of a shit show. And, um, I, um, was lucky enough to get into cause. There was only like, I think eight article clerks that year, which was probably a pretty small intake. And I ended up working with a guy called Ian McPhee who'd just left federal politics and, he was trying to build a workplace bargaining, um, yeah. business that was really, whereas Freehills were quite an adversarial, um, employer take on the unions. This was a much more cooperative kind of win-win bargaining approach. And so, um, I was lucky enough to get into that group. There was a, you know, one of, we speak about mentors, you know, one of my great mentors was a guy called John Denton who had also just joined the group and yeah, we built this practice of, you know, helping companies navigate the changing industrial relations framework of, of the early nineties. And it was great fun because you were actually creating value and, you know, negotiating agreements with unions at sort of this win-win style. So, so that was good fun. And, and to be honest, it's the most interesting job I've ever done. And I still miss the, the intellectual horsepower mm -hmm. of being in a law firm and just the complexity of the problems you had to solve. Like it's a really interesting um, thing. So I, I did that for four years, I, I got a bit restless and, um, I was lucky enough to win a Fulbright scholarship to, um, have a year in the U S. So when I was there, I focused on, um, uh, companies that were sort of working with their unions to, you know, create meaningful workforce change. And it was, you know, visiting car plant plants and manufacturing plants. And, and I worked, um, in a restructuring business that restructured unionized workplaces. So I had a great year in the U S and then came back and, and cause did a partnership with this guy and we started something similar in Australia. So I did that for another three or four years. And then I sort of, um, the, the minutia and the emotional grind of real hardcore organizational change, it was, it was boring me a little bit. So I went back into the law firm and got in partnership as a, as an industrial relations lawyer. And, um, probably one of the more pivotal things I've done in my life, um, was probably early thirties. I sort of looked around the law firm and you see, um, a lot of partners working unbelievable hours, earning big money, but bloody miserable because they can't go anywhere else and replicate that income, but yet they've got the beach house, the kids in private schools. So I sort of was like, 
you know what, as much as I love this, I don't want to end up there in 10 or 15 years. And I sort of had this entrepreneurial blood flowing through the system. So I went and saw a, a career psychologist and did a whole lot of testing about me and my strengths and weaknesses and the whole family history and all that stuff. And so out of that, um, we sort of mapped out this path that said, look, when you're in your forties or fifties, it looks like you want to be investing in businesses or, or building businesses or whatever. And so she said to me, look, right now at this stage of your career, here are the skills you've got. And if you want to be in that sort of space, here are the skills you need, need to build. And here are some areas that you might go to sort of build those skills. So that was, you know, and funnily enough, you know, in my mid forties or fifties, I, I, I pulled out this, I came across this paperwork yeah. and, you know, where I ended up was basically where I said I wanted to when I was 30. But of course the journey is not a linear journey and you, you have false starts, et cetera. So, so that was probably, I think, one of the best interventions I, I mm. sort of did in my career. So after that, I joined a client who was building a third party logistics business and it had been growing for a couple of years. I'd been helping him out with his people strategy. So I joined that as general manager. Um, the day I started, the accountant resigned, not a good sign. Anyone yeah. remember that? And we just found piles, drawers full of bills that hadn't been processed. Yeah. And that, that business went broke within a year and, um, you know, it had 350 people. We had to shut down all the sites. I ended up working with the receivers for a bit. And so it was sort of like, man, you've just given up a partnership in a law firm to go and do this and it's blown up. And, um, so it was the first sort of divergent step. Um, but for me, in some ways that was my MBA because to see the mess that a broken business creates and how it nearly brought down, it was, it was the sun branching out from the father's business it was a very successful business and it nearly brought it down with all the cross guarantees and all that sort of stuff so it was a it was a great learning curve um and after that i was a bit of a loose end and um a a, a, a guy who had been at cause as a consultant bought burdett buckridge young and said tom i need some people in sydney that i know and can trust who've got maybe in your law background would help so i ended up in investment banking in sydney in 2001 when the markets were a train wreck and, mm, sure. and there was this wall at BBY with you know, all the tombstones from all the deals and, and they called it the wall of shame because of all the, you know, the tech deals that had been done and it was just a bloodbath back then. So it wasn't real easy for an industrial relations lawyer to, you know, go into corporate finance at that, that time. But anyway, I, I, I bumbled my way through. I raised some money for uranium mine in, in South Australia that was listed in Toronto. And then luckily we floated Abacus Property Group at that time. And it got, I was always sort of a bit interested in property and that sort of got me, um, um, interested in the listed property space. So out of that, um, I, BBY was sort of struggling a little bit. So we, we, the team went and joined Patterson Ord Manette, um, and I sort of blossomed in those three years and just raised a lot of capital for listed property trust and some income funds, et cetera. And so that was really, you know, a good fun period of my life. And probably the first time, you know, I was making, you know, good money that you could, you know, put a bit aside and invest and stuff like that. So, um, uh, I did that for a while. Then after a while, a while I was getting a bit restless. So you, the, 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 the history of my career is every three or four years, I feel the challenge I've sort of had the courage to jump off the burning platform into the ocean and try something new. And then the challenge kind of dissipates after three or four years and I go, Oh, what can I do next? And so, um, 
I went and joined Abacus. I went and saw Frank, who was the founder of Abacus, and said, look, I'm thinking of doing something different. And the, and the big investment banks were starting to talk to me about joining their property investment banking teams. But I wasn't sort of a big company kind of guy. And so I went and joined Abacus's um, head of funds management. And this was um, 2006. So I had two great years doing deals. And then obviously the GFC hit and being a listed property trust yeah. wasn't a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, and you know, that rights issue to, to restructure the business, to really, you know, rescue it after the impacts of GFC and watching how the banks, you know, one minute you have the relationship bankers who are your best mates. And then yeah. when things go turn a bit, you don't see those blokes, you see bad bank come in and you know, it's a different kettle of fish and the Commonwealth bank were pretty brutal in the aftermath of the GFC with the property group. So, so that was a, once in a great learning experience and. Um, and it was really from there that we, you know, start the Guardian story. Gotcha. Solid background. Yeah. You know, a lot of well, different things, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, at some point you'll say, you know, what were some of the keys to success at Guardian is that background of 20 years mm. working in all these different environments really built quite a um, broad skill set that, that I think was really helpful them becoming a CEO and building a business. Gotcha. So how did you turn being a, a lawyer in the weeds, presumably, of documentation to become yep. a, a sales guy at, uh, you know, effectively broking firms. Um, one of the skills, so, so when I did this test, this testing, she said, Tom, look, some of the things you're great at is you're a bit of an expert advisor. People come to lawyers cause they got, if it was an easy problem, they'd solve it themselves. They come to cause and pay X dollars an hour cause it's a hard problem. So you're a bit of an expert that sort of solves their problem, but you know, you don't have a lot of persuasion or skilling, you know, sales skills and all that stuff. And yeah, you know, I just had to learn it. And it, and in, and in the broking firms, right, you get, you know, I think I was on a hundred grand when I came to Sydney and, you know, you don't live real well in Sydney on a hundred grand, albeit, you know, 20 years ago. But so you sort of had to, um, what was the word? Um, eat what you kill. Yeah. And, and so you have to learn. And so that was for me, the great period in my life of learning the art of persuasion and, and, and selling. And as a lawyer, obviously you have a certain skill set, how you, you know, you approach the problem. And, but when you're asking someone to invest in something, it's a completely different, um, skill. And, and, and that for me was, you know, the great learning or the great benefit I got out of working in investment banking. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please subscribe on whatever platform you're using. It helps us build a community. We want to educate investors and this is what it's all about. Now, a couple of questions. Who are the top three people who influenced you yep. through your life and yep. why? Yep. Um, so my uncle, Gary Hardwick, who um, built the, um, you know, his own meat works and a wholesale meat business. And, um, and I used to go and sort of live with him when I worked at the meat works. And, you know, you know, I started when I was in year eight and you'd have, you know, hanging out with slaughtermen, guys yeah. who'd been in and out of jail, people who'd, you know, throw you you know, they'd cut the wool off sheep, soak it in blood and, you know, throw it on you or, yeah, you know, like it was pretty raw kind yeah. of experience, but I loved it, right? It was such a different experience to St. Bernard's and, um, and, but I used to go and stay with him and, and, you know, drive to the meatworks and back and, and it was just, I think being in the presence of a great entrepreneur and then, you know, he had five boys and he sort of taught them the sort of, you know, they were at the age of eight, were running the Coke machine in the meatworks. And so it was just a very entrepreneurial family and, and Gary's been one of those guys that I can always, you know, ring up and talk to. And I got this, I'm thinking about this. And, 
Um, so I, I think he, he was probably the first great mentor. Um, John Denton, when I was at cause, um, you know, he was an ex Russian diplomat who'd come back and, and sort of came into cause. He, he ended up being the managing partner of cause for the best part of eight or 10 years. And, and John was a great intellectually interesting guy who really, I think taught me just, mate, there's always a solution. You just got to figure out what it is and you just got to crash through and, you know, use your smarts and as well as how to, you know, correct my grammar on letters and all that yeah. fun stuff as a junior lawyer. And then I think that the third great mentor was Frank Wolf at Abacus and Frank, Frank was one of the great property deal doers of Melbourne and, um, oh, sorry, of Australia. And he, um, you know, the thing I learned from Frank is when you buy an asset, it's about protecting your downside because once you lose capital, it's bloody hard to get it back. And so it was about buying an asset, one, at a good price, two, that you had something to play with that you could create some value from. Sure. And it's like, you know, as head of funds management, you, you go and say to him, Frank, look, why don't we buy the ATO office building in Penrith or Parramatta? It's got a 20 year lease to the AFA. He says, you know what, Tom, because it's got a five or 6% yield, mm. it's got a 3% annual increase. And if the world goes bad and interest rates rise, cap rates are going to soften and there's nothing I can do but take a loss on that asset. Now, maybe over 20 years, you know, you, you, you'll recoup it over time, but he liked to buy something that, you know, one was cheap, maybe had a bit of vacancy, maybe had a tenant problem that had to be solved. Let's go and solve that problem. Cause if we can unlock that problem, we're going to create a lot of value as long as we're getting a yield along the way. So the investors get a drink, but it's really about the capital gain on the back end of it. And so, so I really learned that with Frank was one, you know, what sort of asset to buy probably he told me, Tom. Anyone can buy an asset, much harder to sell an asset. Sure. And so getting out of something's a 10 times harder problem than getting into something. So, you know, always think about that exit and, and how mm. you might achieve that. And then I think the other thing that Frank was really good at, you know, and this was a business that had a billion dollars of assets on its balance sheet, probably a billion in funds, in the funds that I was looking after. And it had, you know, bloody assets were being worked. It had, you know, a mezzanine portfolio. It had funds managed. So it was a complex business, but he was able to go, right. Oh, we've got this much of our balance sheet in on direct property earning 7% yield. So we get this much income. We've got this much in mares earning this. And, and he was able to strip it back to a very, um, uh, simple analysis of a complex business. And I do think, and I think the legal skills help with this a lot is the world's a complex place and you can make it very complex and analysts are very good at making it incredibly complex. But how do you strip through all the noise and just go, what are the couple of things that really matter that are really going to drive the, you know, drive the needle, push forward and try to focus on those things and not get too distracted. So, you know, I've been lucky that you sort of find those people in your life that, you know, shape how you think and, and, you know, all of those experiences come together and when you eventually do your own business. Yeah, gotcha. It's interesting exiting assets. It's always the hardest thing, isn't it? Yeah. So what what time? Like, what is the right time to to exit? Yeah. Yeah. There's no real answer there, right? No, no. I've, look, I've got a, I've got a farm down the Kangaroo Valley, and yeah, I bought it well. Mm. Did some renovation. It's been a great asset. I never thought I'd sell it, but I found a better one down south. And yeah, I'm trying to sell at the moment. Well, it's two years ago. I probably could have sold that for seven, seven and a half million bucks, but I wasn't thinking of selling it. Mm. Now. It's been on the market three or four months. I had one serious person look at it. 
like, I reckon if I get five million bucks, yeah. I'll be like, now it's still a good drink from what I bought it for, but there's a thing around the timing and then also it's unlikely someone's just going to come along and say, yeah, here's, here's a check. It's all nice and simple. There's going to be a negotiation and a structure and these things aren't easy to get out of. So yeah, it's a, um, it's something you have to work on selling things. It's not that easy. So you've had a varied career. Can you share two or three pivotal moments that uh, brought you where you are today? As I said, I think the, um, uh, that career testing and psychology, that, that process was very pivotal in, in some ways setting a very long-term high level strategy that, that it wasn't like I pulled it out every year and said, oh, I must do this or I must do this, but it just set a framework to think about in the way I went forward. And, you know, I went this way and that way and, but ultimately ended up where we wanted to end up. And how old were you then? When you just that? either 30 or 31, something like yeah, that. Yeah. So um, a, lot of, a lot of people think they know exactly where they're going. Yeah. And you stood back and said, I actually need some help here. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty unique. Yeah. It was funny. I had a mate at the time who was a, like a recruitment guy who did a bit of outsourcing and stuff. And I think he was the one that put me on to her. And yeah, so that, that was definitely a pretty pivotal moment. And then I think, um, yeah, I think that failure at 3PP, that logistics yeah. business when I left the law firm, because when that failed, it was like, okay, well now I've got some more time on my hands. And then all of a sudden this opportunity come to Sydney and, and really that's to me, I, I just think Sydney's such a dynamic place. It's such a great place for business. It's the most international city. It's halfway between Melbourne and Brisbane. I, to, to get that opportunity to come up here because that other business failed was, I think, you know, the start of a great, you know, life journey in Sydney. Um, so yeah, look, there's some of the things I, you know, I'd point to. Gotcha. Now to Guardian, you yep. start as a side hustle and yep. under your leadership grew in a $500 million business, yep. big number. Yeah. How did you scale the business? Yeah. It's, um, um, basically what happened was uh, my wife left school and has been in childcare her whole life. So she takes all the credit for it as, as she should. Um, the, um, and, and so we'd had our own center in Melbourne, which was hard work. We had a few kids at, we sold it and, and came to Sydney. I was involved with four other guys. So five of us in the early 2000, uh, thir early 2000s were going, we should try and do something in childcare. Oh, you've had a center before. Why don't you join and let's try and figure it out. So the genesis of Guardian was five blokes thinking we should do something in childcare. We bought one or two crappy little centers that, you know, really didn't do anything. We were thinking about, um, maybe building a center. There was a pro couple of property guys in the group. And, um, uh, and then there was, at the time there was two groups. There was Eddie Groves had ABC and, um, and it was listed and growing and the start of the great train wreck. And there was another guy called Mike Gordon who had peppercorn management, which was a management company. So it managed people's centers and all of it's the asset, all of the assets were off balance sheet. So Mike was a master at really creating some value. So eventually Eddie and Mike came together and, um, ABC acquired Peppercorn. And we said, hang on, ABC don't want to manage centers, they want to own centers. Why don't become a childcare management company? So we pivoted Guardian and became a childcare management business. And over time picked up 30 or 40 centers that we were managing on other people's behalf, a bit like a hotel management okay. company. Yep. Um, now it was a crappy business. It didn't really make any money because we sort of got 
I call it the fish that John West reject in the sense of if someone had a good childcare centre, why would they pay us 30 or 40 grand a year to manage it? They'd do it themselves. So we got all the difficult troubled centres. Um, and so then it was like, well, this isn't going to, this isn't going to work. So we, we started, um, buying a few centers. We ran out of money. And then, um, Abacus said to us, look, why don't we give you some money to put a portfolio together? Because Abacus at that point had just started the self storage fund, which was with storage King. And that had been a great, um, asset class. And, you know, it's separate, you know, they've just released, listed, listed it this year, I think. And because it had the property and the operating business. So you could really crank a good return. You get a nice yield, but with that business part of being part of it, you could really get a nice return. And, you know, and those early investors in Storage King, luckily I was one of them, done it, had a great drink along the way. Um, so we, they thought maybe we could do something in childcare. We, we buy the property and the business, et cetera. So we started down that path with Abacus and then, um, we put 17 centers together, but it was difficult to buy the property and the business together. Whereas with self-storage, you know, mm. it is, that's all you've, you, all it is, is a property basically. So, um, so we, by this point, this is probably 2000, 2008, 2009, we'd put 17 centers together for Abacus. We had 40 or 50 of our own under management and the GFC hit. So Abacus sort of stopped spending any money. And, um, then by 2009, it was like we had to tidy up the balance sheet. No, I'm at, in Abacus at this point. And it essentially it was, let's, um, we've got to get out of childcare. How do we get out of childcare? Difficult just to sell the assets individually and get our money back. Um, but what had happened is ABC had gone bust. A lot of the private equity firms had looked at mm. ABC and said, actually, this isn't a bad sector. The, this business isn't a great example of it. And it's, it's too distressed for us. But, um, so there was a little bit of interest. And so the upshot of it all was that, um, we found a private equity firm that said, look, we'll buy the Abacus portfolio. We want to buy the manager and roll that in. So it's not an external manager. It's an internalized vehicle. And we want you to leave Abacus to come and run it. And so October, 2010, the sort of current iteration of Guardian started, which was um, uh, I, 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 I joined, I joined to run it. We'd broken the partnership from five partners down to two by this point. And, um, we had some money, Walsley Private Equity, our first group. And, um, here we were, we owned 17 centers and we managed some centers. And so it was like, okay, now we've got this, what do we do? Mm. And so in essence, how did we scale it? Um, from there, we, we basically bought 10 centers a year and I call it, we'd buy 10 good centers and we turned them into 10 great centers. So we're very focused on organic growth and, um, we bought the centers. We had private equity as our partners to provide the capital. And then, um, eventually we had our balance sheet and our P&L was big enough that we could afford to do some greenfields. So we did four or five greenfields a year yep. because when you buy, when you buy a center, um, you might pay at those times it was four times today, it's five or six times earnings with a greenfield. You can probably get in and sort of one or two times earnings, Makes but sense. you've yep. obviously got all the ramp up risk and all that stuff. So that was sort of essentially how we did it. We used private equity money to help fund the acquisition of, um, 10 centers a year. Yep. And, um, 
You do that enough year in, year out, it all compounds and compounds and it adds up. Gotcha. And during that uh, period, what worked and then what didn't? If you had to pick a couple of things. The, um, I think uh, there was a couple of things I think we did really well at Guardian. One was, you know, you got to have a good team and, and, and I, I, I'm an entrepreneur, not a corporate guy. And so we put a great team of really passionate, dynamic, entrepreneurial people together who'd walk on water to do the right thing by, in some ways, a bit by me as the founder, a bit by the business collectively, and more importantly, for the children that we were, you know, looking after every day. So I think we had a really great team of dynamic people who, you know, probably would many of them last in a big corporate environment? No, but were they fantastic at building an incredible business? Yes. Um, two, I had this saying, I like to buy 10 Sofitel hotels every year, not 50 country comfort motorings. Yeah, gotcha. And that, because if you look at ABC, G8, Peppercorn, I think there was one called Kids Campus, they all failed, right? They all came together, put some centers, they listed, they raised money, they grew and they all blew up because buying a childcare center is a very fragile, you know, any small business is very fragile, right? Because all you've got is a few people and some relationships. And, you know, if you bought a center and didn't show that center a bit of love and, and help them with the integration into this bigger thing, all you needed was a center manager to get bit pissed off with you yeah. and leave. Yeah. Bad mouth you to a few of the parents. Sure. Yeah. And maybe take a couple of staff and this business you bought at 90, 95%, it was back at 70% occupancy within three or four months and that's break even point, right? Yeah, so, right. so you really had to, um, uh, be good at what you did. And if you bought 50 a year or your whole business psyche is about doing deals and buying assets, not, it's not about running them. It's about buying them. And so as everyone loves to do a deal and, you know, if you've got money, anyone can do a deal. It's just how much you buy it for. But the, the great test was really, can you buy these things and, you know, one plus one equals three. And we were really good at that at Guardian. And uh, partly because of the people we had that could do that, but two, we weren't trying to do 50 centers a year. Yeah, gotcha. I mean, yeah, because childcare centers is part of the community, right? So if yeah. you're not going to become part of the community, I can see I could quickly go, yeah. Oh, yeah. go the other way. The word of mouth. And, mm. you know, and this was when social media was really just taking off. Now it's like, you know, you, you, you screw up and uh, everyone knows about it. And then probably um, the, other, um, the other thing which I think we did really well that set us apart from a lot of our competitors was after a while, we had 30 or 40 centers and, and, and Anthony, my partner and I were, he was sort of more the operations. I was more the strategy and stuff. And it was like, like, what are we doing this for? And what is it that ties these centers? We, we kept, they're all individually branded and we, um, didn't know whether to do a brand them all as a corporate brand. And eventually with the marketing it became too hard to market all these disparate brands. But it was sort of, what's the essence of gay and why, why do we exist and what's the, and so we used to go to the US every year and visit all the childcare companies and a bit of time in Europe. And, and we decided, you know, we needed something to the rallying call of who Guardian was. And so we did a lot of work on our purpose and our vision and, and we, we came up with this purpose, which was, um, shaping the world of tomorrow through the children of today, which, you know, children, those first five years of their life is so incredibly, um, formative and. 
you know, we probably had 15,000 children a week coming through the centres and 3,000 staff. And so what does this all mean? And, 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 and we've got this unique opportunity with the, so many children to help shape, you know, the early parts of their life, um, you know, in partnership with their parents. And so we, we developed this curriculum and, and, and what's our educational ethos and, and that really then became the real unifying call for Guardian. It's what stood us out and, and it attracted a certain type of educator. And, and that, so I think they were the sort of three or four fundamental, um, keys to, to, to the success of it. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you want to learn more about alternative assets, there's a book here you can read, How You Grow Your Wealth with Alternative Assets. Now back to the episode. What about some bumps in the road? Look. What didn't work? To be, to be honest, there weren't a lot of bumps in the road. Um, you know, sure you'd buy the odd centre that would, um, you know, and typically most centres you buy would go backwards before they go forwards in the sense that you would buy it everyone would get a little bit, unst you know, unstable, yeah. um, with this change of ownership and, oh my God, this big corporate's coming to buy us and the world's going to end. And, yeah. um, and, and then you put, you know, all of a sudden you put payroll tax into the P and L that the center didn't have before, cause it wasn't part of a group. You put, you know, some overhead with supervision and, and so you buy a business and it would go backwards. So you had to work hard to get it to back up. But you know, we had the odd one that, you know, went wrong. We had, you know, we had incidents that went wrong in the centres, but you couldn't let that, um, you know, when you've got 10,000 children a day and 3,000 staff and, you know, 20,000 very emotional parents, you know, emotional in the sense of, you know, you've got their most precious asset with them and, you know, they really, they, they drive you pretty hard on it. Um, there's always stuff that goes wrong. Um, I think probably the most monumental thing that I, I had two monumental things at Guardian. One was the Lint um, terror attack. Wow, yeah. We had three centers within 200 meters of that cafe that day. And we had another five or six in the CBD of Sydney. So we had 10, roughly 10 centers in the yeah, CBD. The one above the Deutsche building? Yeah. yeah. Sun was in there that there day. There you go. So there you go. Um, <laughs> and that was just, yeah, here was a real crisis. Mm. The centers were locked down and parents couldn't get into the centers mm. and the police weren't letting them to come and pick up their kids. And so we were sort of figuring out with parents how they could sort of come in through the back doors of car parks and sort of mm -hmm. try because all, all the parents wanted to do is we got to get out of the city and our kids are within 200 meters. And, and so that day was like a real test of, you know, leadership. And, and I, and I, I, I still go back to my time as a lawyer and go, when the world's very gray and there's so much going on, how do you just strip down? What are the core issues here and how do we get through it? And so that was a pretty horrific day. And then, um, the other massive bump in the road is I had, I had this woman that used to work for us and she was a real leader of, of the, of the center managers and very passionate about social issues. And anyway, um, I got, a, I was about to go home one Christmas Eve was about one o'clock, two o'clock. And I thought phew, most of the centers are shutting down now. There's not much more. I'm about to go home. No, probably I was about to go and start my Christmas shopping and, um, I get a call. Oh, it's Claire Penno's father on the phone. Okay. That's a bit weird. Why is he calling me? So I take the call and he told me that Claire and her two-year-old daughter had been killed in a car accident overnight in Zimbabwe. And it was just like, I've never felt anything like it. And I sat there for half an hour in sort of complete shock. 
And then I had to sort of go and tell all the mates in Melbourne. So we put a, um, a group phone call on that I sort of communicated this down the line and the, 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 the screaming and the, 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 the sort of the shock and the horror that these young women felt about one of their best mates and their daughter had died. And, and that, um, God, that really rocked the organization. And that was something that, you know, we got through Christmas and then we had the funeral. So that was, you know, they were, that, they were two really horrific bumps in the road, but from a business point of view, yeah, it went, went pretty smooth. Um, so you made a jump from probably some would say traditional career, went to Melbourne Uni, become a lawyer, yep. and then jumped out into the world of basically being an entrepreneur. Like, what advice would you give someone who's making that transition or thinking about making that transition? Um, look, I, I think, I think, look, what would I say? Well, I think back yourself, like, yeah. You know, you've got to have belief in yourself. You can't listen to all the people who'll say, oh, you've got a good career. You couldn't possibly give that up. Mm. Why would you do that? You spent five years at Melbourne. Like, I, I do think, and I say this to my kids, I think you've got to spend time in a big organisation just to see what how it's done, right? Whether it's a big investment bank or a big Aussie bank or a big law firm or a big accounting firm, the training you get, the networks you get, like it's invaluable. And I, I think yeah. if you're smart enough and good enough to be able to get your way into those joints and you don't have to necessarily be the best bloody graduate from uni, you know, if you've got the right drive and you work in networks. And so I, I would say that's an important thing to do at some point of your career. I think, um, um, you know, backing yourself when the right idea comes along, I think preparing yourself for, it. I think if you want to do something, I think if, you've been a lawyer at cause for the last 10 years and you want to go and start your own business. That's got nothing to do with law. You know, it's, it's not a nothing sort of leap and, and either spend some time building up the skills before you do that, or make sure you've got a team of people with all the, the right skills that, you know, can complement what you need to do that. Um, and, um, there was one other thing I was going to say, but I can't bloody remember. Um, so yeah, I think they're the sort of things that, um, and I think the other thing's passion. It's, you don't build a business sitting on your ass thinking it's going to happen, right? You got to really work hard. It's, it's, it's all encompassing. It takes up your whole life and you have to be prepared for that. And you need a partner who's going to support you on that. You, you, you cannot build a business and have a partner who's working 60 hours a week. Otherwise, one, you won't see each other. Two, you won't have a relationship. And if you've got kids, you know, you're not going to see your kids. And, and, and it was a, it was a struggle for me. I, I'm lucky my wife and I met, I was just turned 17. She was 16 and we've been together ever since. And, you know, she has given me the freedom to do this. You know, at times I push it too hard and, you know, need to pull back a bit, but, um, but you know, I, I made sure I was there for dinner with the kids a couple of nights a week. You know, we had those family dinners two or three nights a week and you can't be there for all of them. And, you can't be there for their sport. You know, you just, you, you can't have it all. If you want to build a business and really be successful, there's a lot of sacrifice. Yeah, agree. Now back to what you're up to these days. Yeah. Coogee Capital. Yeah. Um, how did it come about? Yeah. And what problem are you solving? Sure. Um, Dave and I were sort of mulling over our lives in, I don't know, 2019, sort of in the lead up to COVID. We sort of started to work on this idea. I think it was... Um, I don't think we wanted to go and work in 
corporates and be employees. So that was probably the starting point of it. Then it was like, you know, we've actually got some pretty useful experiences collectively. I and mean, we're quite different people. You know, Dave's a great networker and he's a great visionist and a great confident sort of, you know, really leads people. And, and um, and it was sort of like, Hey, how, how do we use this experience of ours? Um, do we go and buy a business? Do we advise people? We sort of looked at going into the big investment banks and doing like a private markets business there. And I was like, Oh my God, do we really want to go in the investment bank at this age of our lives? And, um, and, and probably the third thing is I sort of have a reasonably strong views on is private equity the best model for a company founder or entrepreneur to grow their business. See, I had three different private equity firms on the journey. The first one was great experience. The second one was a pretty tense experience. And to be honest, I think rather than get rid of me, they decided to sell the business because we'd done pretty well. And then the third one was an offshore group with, you know, very, um, internationally driven, you know, large sort of bureaucracy coming down and a much more difficult group to work with. So, um, so it was really, Hey, is there an alternative to the classic private equity that we could offer, um, given our collective experiences? And that's, that's what, um, that's why we set up Coogee Capital. And I sort of, the great challenge for an entrepreneur, whether it's a family business or a, you know, a founder led business, whatever, is you do need capital to grow. And, you know, some people are lucky that you don't need a lot of capital and you can manage it. Um, you know, at Guardian, if we were buying 10 centers a year, we could borrow half from the bank, but we needed to keep raising equity. And yes, we had a bit of spare cash, but it wasn't enough. Um, I think the challenge is private equity like to have control. And as soon as you as a founder don't have control of your business, you're nothing more than a glorified employee at the disposal of the majority shareholder. So I think that's a key thing people have got to know when you get into bed with private equity. Two, um, they're, um, they're a very financially driven kind of group of people. They're not, not most of them have never really owned their own business or worked in a business or scaled a business. They've come out of uni and got a nice finance degree and maybe got an MBA and, and you know, they can drive you crazy as a, as an entrepreneur, you know, they can be a great source of support. Um, uh, I, I called it the, um, I call them the propeller heads, you know, the yeah. kids that had come in and they'd bloody analyze your business. And we were doing one transaction, I think when we were going out of our second PE firm to the third and they'd send you a list of like a hundred questions. And so you and the management team, you'd diligently write all the answers and you'd send it back on a Wednesday night. Cause we had a presentation, you know, a, a Q and a on Friday. Well at 10 AM on Friday, you'd get a PowerPoint deck with a hundred bloody pages of all these charts that they've taken your answers and created all of it. And it's like, mate, what is all this? Like, it's got nothing to do with the deal or the, the key risk in it. So I, I sort of, and that can drive a founder crazy. And, um, I think the other thing is they're really smart guys who, who do this for a living and the documents and everything, it's all very weighed towards them and you as a founder, and it's pretty hard to get a lawyer smart enough to take on these PE guys. They, they are very good at what they do. And so they're great to invest with because they're very driven about creating returns. And, you know, I've got money in private equity firms because, you know, I see what they do, 
But I think as a founder and entrepreneur, I think there's better ways to fund the growth of your business if you can. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think if you're a professional executive who's come out of a big corporate and you're looking for a way to make some real money and you want to sort of run a business and they're great to work with, um, I just think as a founder and entrepreneur, there's a different way. And so that's why we set up Coochie Capital, try and do it differently. There's ultimately a loss of control there, isn't it? For the yeah. Founder. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you meet David? Uh, Dave and I started bike riding together. We used to do these charity bike rides yeah. and, um, it was always in sort of February, March here. And, and he at the time was, um, looking after Richard Branson's airline investments around the world. So, you know, Virgin were a big supporter of the bike ride and David fly in from Geneva and he'd pull out the bike and we, off we go on these, you know, 150, 200 K days, you know, seven, it's about six day ride, a thousand Ks. Well, he'd always blow up by day two or three because he'd come from the snow in Geneva yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was just out of, you know, he wasn't fit for that sort of riding. So we sort of, you know, you used to share rooms with people. So, yeah, we just sort of got onto that. And then he came back and was in Coogee. So we basically live at either ends of Coogee Beach and, yeah, we just, we just spent time together and just started mulling over the future and what we do. Yeah, fair enough. It's always good to start a business with someone you know and yeah. get along with. Yeah, I think, like I... At times in my life, I've thought partnerships weren't necessarily the best way to go. And, you know, when we started Guardian, it was five guys and, you know, we sort of had to break that partnership because it was too many people to run a business. And, um, whereas I think two is a better way. I think also as you get older, you go, you know what, I'd actually don't have the skills to do everything. Mm. It's great to have a complimentary, you know, group of people around you and, you know, so the older you get, you don't want to work quite as hard. So you want to bring in a collective group of people, you know, and we're bringing some guys into Coogee Capital that are at that, you know, early stages, you know, probably more early forties than late forties or 50. And I think the other thing I say to people is I reckon from the age of 40 to 50 is the greatest wealth creating opportunity in your life. Like to me, that's when you've been working for 20 years, you've got, you should have enough experiences, a good network. And, you know, you can sit there and collect a wage for the rest of your life and, you know, have a little super balance and be comfortable. Yeah. But, you know, that's, I reckon, the time when, you know, what people I think are really looking for is how do you go out and try to generate 10 or 20 million bucks that you can put away that then gives you an income that you can either live passively or you can go and do some property deals or whatever. And I reckon that period of 40 to 50, that's the prime 10 years of your life. I agree. It's similar to what I started. I partners in that, in that yeah. bucket and. You do need that 10 to 15 years though out in, I'd call it the real world, yep. working for big organizations because the networks you build, the training they yep. give you, yep. all that's valuable. Yep. Um, but you know, ultimately some people make you know, the decision, get out on their own, which, yeah. which is what you've done. No, no look, my, my son's bloody 20 and not, he's not going, he's gone out on his own. He started a car yeah. detailing business and he's now selling secondhand cars and like he's on the entrepreneurial journey. Now, I sort of go, mm, I don't know if that's the path that I would have encouraged. My older daughter's similarly entrepreneurial, but she had a bit of time in a big bank. And, um, but he, you know what, he'll make, he'll make some, some of the great entrepreneurs. I never went to school. I just yeah. got out and, and there are a lot of them, you know, and I think boys seem to struggle a bit more finding their place in the world than girls in that sort of that age group. Yeah, some of them waste 10 years of their life just bumming around, buddy, trying to figure it out. So, you know, there's no right answer for it. You just, you know, you just back them and see how they go. Yeah, fair enough. So you work with founder-led private companies, family businesses. Yep. 
and you know, being I partners have invested with you in a number of those. Yep. Um, what is unique about these type of businesses, and why why are you looking there? Um, I think one we're looking there because we like the space, and we feel we can add some value. And we were I had a meeting yesterday, and we were talking about something. I said, you know, finding a deal is a bit of fun. Doing the deal is not really a lot of fun, but it's a necessary evil. And raising the capital is hard work, and you know, it's not nothing to ask people to back you and all that stuff. But once that's all said and done, then you've got this business that you've got that you really want to help grow. And that's the fun part for me is actually, all right, what's the strategy? Who are the people we need? Um, how's the founder going? What sort of support do they need? What What's the capital? And so they're the great challenges of business and, and the, the, well, the pillars of business and then the challenges that come from trying to execute it. And so that's, um, that's what I love about sort of what we're doing. Um, I think from so far we've done, so we've completed two transactions and we're working with a group where we're essentially the office of CEO. Um, the owner lives offshore and he's asked us to basically oversee the business from a strategic perspective. So, um, I, I just think working with those groups and helping them you know, deliver on their mission and just providing the bit of guidance and experience. And, you know, as Dave likes to call it, we can help look around a few corners. That's what I really enjoy at what we're doing. Gotcha. What qualities and character traits do you look for in founders? Yeah. Like I think the number one thing for me is honesty and integrity. Um, because, you know, people have entrusted us with their capital so we have to trust this guy or girl who's running this business that they're, they're just honest with us, right? Mm. Because we all know things go wrong. And when they do, if we all, if we know about it early, well, we'll collectively we can solve the problem and move forward. And so I think that's an important trait. I think humility is an important trait. Um, you know, I don't want to work with someone like the guy from WeWork, you know, not that we ever yeah. would, but you know, that, 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 that movie about, like he was just, you know, he thought he had it all and he just had a vision. We want someone who's got the passion and the vision and the ideas, but someone who also accepts they don't have all the skills and they need a bit of help and, and actually leans in and embraces the help. You know, I struggled a bit at Guardian when I sort of, I was the smartest guy in the room and yeah. sort of, um, so finding the people who, who, who know they need a bit of help and, and I think then trying to put a team to, together around that person, you know, because, that leadership team is so critical because when you go to sell the business in whatever format or whatever, the buyer's going, who, who's, who can run this business? Sure, there's a great founder, but who's the people behind that founder such that if the founder gets hit by a bus, that would be. I went and saw someone in America one time about buying Guardian and they said, Tom, you know, the greatest, the greatest thing about Guardian is you because you've got this vision and you built it and blah, blah, blah. The greatest problem about guarding is you, yeah, because if sure. you're not there and we're sitting here in America, who's going to run this business and who's going to drive it with mm. the same sort of passion? So I think the the notion of putting a good team into a business and a lot of founder led businesses don't necessarily have that good team. Yeah. And the great challenge is you surround yourself by people who are very passionate, who walk over, walk over water for you. But at some point their skills tap out a bit. 
And you do need to keep bringing people in that have got the skills for the next leg of the journey that you're going on. But it's a really difficult thing to do because often you bring these people in and particularly if they come from big corporates, they don't get entrepreneurial organizations. Mm. I call them the paper shufflers. They want to come in and put all these bloody processes and systems and forms you've got to fill out and it, and it drives everyone crazy. But you do sort of have to figure out this transition of the organization growing up and along the way you, you lose some people as a result of it and um, you know, it's about how you deal with those conversations, et cetera. And I had, I brought friends into Guardian because I trusted them. They had great capabilities, good generalists, but at some point I had to let them go to bring in a few more specialists. And, and I think that's, um, that's a real art, I think, of growing a business. I think it's something we can really help entrepreneurs and founders with because they haven't figured out how to do it yet. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please leave a review. It's really important to us. We're trying to build momentum around education and better reviews will get more people coming and listening. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. It's that transition from being that you know nimble founder-led business to you, at some point you've got to grow up. Yeah. You need yeah. growing up staff. Yeah. People that can help support you through that. Yeah, exactly. It's very good. Um, you know, future plans, you know, Fuji Capital. Yeah, it's um uh you know, when you start a business, it's like, can we get a customer? And, yeah. you know, have we got, are we onto something here? And, and, and I think both Dave and I are pretty confident we're onto something. Um, and so I, I think we're going to do three things. One is partner with entrepreneurs to help them grow their business. And, and by that, I mean 30 to 50% stakes in businesses that we like. We don't want to be the control. Yep because then it's not the founder's business. So it's got to be the founder's business. We want them living and breathing every moment of it. Um, and then, you know, building these partnerships, whether we're at 30% or 50%, it's kind of, you know, we're in it together and how do we build this partnership? So I think that's probably the core thing for what we do. I think we just bought this business. We bought a hundred percent of this business because uh, the founder was retiring and, and I just think, and we like, we paid, four times for it. It's got a huge growth run rate in front of it. It's very cash generative. It's a really great business. Now it's a bit of an ugly duckling kind of business, not very sexy, but, and there's so many of these sort of people who have built these businesses, whether they're families that the kids don't want to take it over anymore or, or a sole founder. And so the concept of how do we build a, a network of some CEOs and some talent around us that if we bought a business a hundred percent, that we can take on that management risk and, um, uh, and, and go forward with it now. And obviously if, if you buy those things cheap enough, you've got to, you know, you've got to be a capital, you know, downside protection on the management transition risk. So I think we'll do that. And then I like, I really like the work we're doing with this founder at the moment who has removed himself from the business. He lives overseas and he's just going, look, it's hard for me to find a CEO that I can work with who can run this business in my absence you guys have kind of done this before. You're not consultants and expert advisors. Mm. You're actually entrepreneurs. Can you help me run this business and, um, and help me with the strategy, help me execute it. And, you know, at some point that business will need some capital because we're putting together a growth plan that, you know, it's got a great growth run right in front of it. And so at that point we might, you know, help raise some capital and, um, and, you know, for us, it's probably, it's a more de-risk business at that point yeah. because we've been working with it for a year or two. We got one of our guys is, act, is acting CEO. He's brought one of his guys in as the acting CFO. 
we're all over it, you know? Um, so I think that's also an interesting way of, um, working. So look, if we do a a deal or two a year, um, we're sort of happy with that. You know, I've got a farm, I've got lots of cows to chase around. I've got to keep out of trouble and do a bit of bike riding and, you know, I've got a wine bar in Coogee that uh, That's pretty good. takes up a bit of time, keep looking after Rob down there every now and again yeah. on date night. So, yeah, so there's enough going on. Um, but, yeah, I think this is our passion and it's going to be fun for the next fun journey. What sort of cows you got, Angus? Yeah, I'm doing a um, Wagyu cross strategy. So I've got um, I've got a dozen beautiful Wagyu bulls with very good genetics mm-hmm. that I bought this year. And then I've got um, about 400... Angus cows that we're sort of doing this sort of crossbreeding strategy with. I, I decided I had a farm in Kangaroo Valley, I had 20 cows and every year I'd send the, the calves up to Mossvale mm. and the buying cartel just determines what price, you're just a pure price taker. Yeah. And whereas I thought with the first cross Wagyu, if I could do something a, a bit more at the pointy end, if you got the right genetics and you, and you do it mm. a bit different. And so that's what I'm trying to do in the farming is, is just try to elevate myself a little bit away from just the base market of it. Now, will it work? We'll see. Um, but so far, so good. Do you know what you're doing? Yeah. Well, well, I think one of the great things of being an entrepreneur is jumping into things Mm, that you don't know so much. You know, I'd never run a hospitality venue before, but you know, we'd run a hundred childcare centers and how hard can running hospitality (laughs) be? Maybe I should have done a bit more homework on that because you know, COVID was around the corner, et cetera. So, but, but it's the learning of this and finding people who can run it that you can work with yeah, and learn sure. from. And, and that's what I've, you know, I've had a bit of farming in the, in the blood. A butcher but, background, right? So you kind of yeah. got some, there must be some knowledge but it, there. Yeah, there's a bit of base knowledge, but you know, it, it is a different thing running a farm and learning about grass and feed and mm. growth rates and all the animal you know, hygiene stuff. So it's, look, that's good fun. Yeah, I've experimented in farming with my three Angus cows. Yeah, there you go. But I've been at a uh, board meeting yeah. in the city. I get a phone call and your cows are running down the road. So yes. that was, yeah, yeah. it was time to rethink my strategy. Yeah, well, Travis, if it's any consolation, we bought this new farm down at Jugiong last year and we'd had it a couple of months. And because it had been not used for six months, we were doing a bit of work um, tidying up around the house to make it fireproof because mm. we had grass, you know, it was a bit wet, wet spring. And it all turned dry. Anyway, we started this bloody fire and it spread 600, yeah. 600 acres we burned out that afternoon. Yeah. We had a 747, a 737, about six choppers, about four other jets, wow. 150 fire fighters on the farm. <laughs> Hi, where are your new neighbours from Sydney? Nice to meet That's you. That's pretty impressive. So, yeah, that was uh, – there's, no, there's always something going wrong in farming. You don't, you're doing it for the love of it and hopefully a bit of land appreciation. I can't think of much more. Well, it amazes me the good farmers that can kind of fix everything, right? Fix yeah. their tractors. Yeah. Uh, Very talented. Yeah. Anyway, exactly. so a couple of quick fire questions. Yep. What was your first job? Uh, first job was probably work experience at the Meatworks. Um, first real job was uh, um, an article clerk at Coors. Gotcha. What's a piece of advice for your younger self? Uh, don't look back, look forward. Good on you. What motivates you as a person? Uh, challenge, pushing myself. What's the next challenge? What are your tips for driving long-term wealth? I think focus. Um, you know, the, the most money I've made in my life is from Guardian. All the times I put a bit in share market and a mm. bit here and a bit there, like you just get spread too thin. And so I think focus. Gotcha. What's the most important habit for building wealth and why? 
I think you've got to trust your gut. I think you need to get advice and listen to people, et cetera. But ultimately, you make the decision and you're accountable for it and you either win by it or lose by it. Gotcha. Sounds like the best trade you did was Guardian. Yep. What was your worst investment and what did you learn? Look, one of the worst things I did was I sold three childcare centres that were making, they're probably making a million bucks a year at the time. And it was great. I got, I think I got seven million bucks. I paid off the house. I renovated the house and I bought the Kangaroo Valley debt free. And it was like, okay, that was a nice trade, but I really missed the cash flow those little buggers gave yeah. me every year. And today they'd probably be giving me 2 million bucks of cash. So I think if you've got a good asset that is producing good cash, don't sell it because you can use that cash to buy, you know, investment properties or put it in the, whatever. So I think that was, um, one of the dumbest things I did selling those centers. You got your farm though. Yeah. I started something. Can you share your top tips for those looking to start a business? I think, um, in a few words, it's difficult, but I, I, I think buying something and making it better is an easier route than starting something from scratch. Interesting. Um, because if you buy, it's got cash flow. You can probably borrow half the money from the bank if you've kind of got some skills mm. and then you've got cash flow and then you can improve the cash flow and then you can maybe grow the business using that cash flow. I think... When you start a business now, some like funds managers or for, there's some businesses that are easier to start than others that don't take a lot of capital and you can get cash flow positive pretty quickly. But I, I, I for me, most of guarding success came from buying centers. Gotcha. What's your definition of sustainable success? Um, I think, I think one for me has been intellectually challenged in a business context and, and, and you know, using the brain and having some success, some wins along the way. I think trying to get the personal side of your life under control, which is some sort of, um, you know, serenity in your life. Mm. For me, bike, I get that a lot out of bike riding or chasing cows around the farm. Yeah. You know, I think having a good relationship with, with your partner and, you know, it, it's in many ways that relationship's been the, the bedrock of, of my success. Um, you know, time for your kids and all that stuff. And, and then also I think as a bloke particularly, finding time for your mates because when you're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week, you know, you sort of have a, a work network. Then you have a lot of time with, you know, whatever time you have left, it's trying to with your wife and your kids and finding some time to um, have to yourself just to, I think that's pretty important. So I think sort of that business, personal, family, trying to get that in balance is pretty important. Gotcha. This sort of leads in the next question, actually. What legacy living and um, leaving? Yeah, I, I don't see myself as really, you're on this earth for a short time and, mm. you know, you sort of make the most of your life. Um, I think, you know, I think when I, when I'm not here, I think if my kids in the future said, you know, mum and dad's relationship was inspiring to us and was really the, the foundation of this great family that we built. I think that would be a nice thing to leave with the kids. And then I think, I think they've got from osmosis that, you know, mum and dad were a bit entrepreneurial. They had a crack at things in life and no one gives you anything in life. And, you know, we've got to put our heads down and go and have a crack. And, you know, we learned from around the dinner table or hanging out with mum and dad that, you know, mm. some entrepreneurial traits that set them on their way. That's great. I think you've answered this one a couple of times, but uh, when you're not working, how do you like yeah. to spend your time? Yeah, we've got the we've got the bar. Yeah, we've got the farming. Yeah, travel, wine, 
farming and, and bike riding. Cycling, yeah. And often we can put all of them together yeah. by going to Europe for a yeah, month so or two. Off, off to France, eh? Yeah. Well, I, Sweden? Yeah. Yeah. I probably go to Europe every year or two in July or August for bike riding. I've done solo bike rides from across countries and all that stuff. So yeah, we, we didn't go this year. So maybe next year we'll get back there for a bit gotcha. of trip. What's the biggest mistake you see with people trying to build a business? From, from the, the, the context that I've been in, I think focusing too much on growth, either by it's all about chasing more revenue, but profits not growing at the same rate as revenue, mm. or we've got to buy more businesses and, you know, all those scale ups of people, aggregation plays of people buying, you know, whether it's dental practices, medical, whatever, so many of them fail because, um, they're just doing deals and buying businesses. And that's not, that's not how you'd be an entrepreneur. An entrepreneurs to get something and make it great and mm. grow it and, and one plus one equals three kind of concept. So I think that um, is the great mistake too many people make. Good on you. Really appreciate your time today, Thank Tom. You. Uh, for those listening want more information on QG Capital, it's qgcapital.com is the website. Mm-hmm. You can find all the information you need, but really appreciate you making yep. time. No, that's right. Appreciate it. Thanks for the chat, Travis. Tight. Hey, if you're enjoying this, please leave a review. It's really important to us. We're trying to build momentum around education and better reviews will get more people coming and listening.